Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. All right, we've officially wrapped up our series through the book of Jonah. I loved it. And so uh, before we jump into our next series, I just want to give credit where credit is due. And so any series that I'm working on, I'm I'm doing a lot of background reading um, that is, it comes to play at various points throughout the series. And uh, if, if I'm quoting anyone directly, then of course I'm always citing them, but Otherwise, I, I'm not always saying, like, oh, this uh, this little tidbit had a flavor from Scott McKnight, and this little tidbit um, was a little bit from um, Peter David's, <coughs> so on and so forth. Uh, on the podcast, I say at the end, you know, here's the sources. So today... At the beginning of the series, I just want to name these folks. Their scholarship is so value valuable. So Luke, Timothy Johnson, Craig Keener, Herb Kopp, Craig Blomberg, John Stott, Elsa Tamez, Miriam Camel, Ada Spencer, Robert Gilbert, Scott McKnight, Richard Bauckham, Stephen Rung, Peter Davids, Andreas Kostenberger, Fiam Perkins, and Pedrito Maynard Reed. Uh So, brand new series through a book of the New Testament that is written by the person who I am convinced had heard Jesus fart. That's right, fart more than any other writer of scripture. We're beginning a journey through the book of James. And if you're trying to find it, it's just after Hebrews in the New Testament. James was the younger brother of Jesus. And some will say, why the fart comment? Like, stop being gross. Others will think it's a hoot. But I'm actually trying to capture something important here, which is that James had a very unique relationship with Jesus. Uh, See, James had been hearing Jesus fart in his sleep and while awake, not just once, but all throughout his life. See, Jesus grew up in a family with five brothers, five brothers, and at least two sisters. There may have been more. So Jesus is one of at least seven children. And yes, when you grow up together and you share a bedroom, you hear one another fart. And you play games and you compare muscles and facial hair and daydream together and tell stories and get into trouble together and play pranks together. In their 20s, James and Jesus may have been in the masonry business together. If anyone had ever seen Jesus pick his nose or pick his nose and eat it 
or if anyone knew about any of Jesus' gross habits, it was James. Of all the writers of Scripture, James is the guy. And so the fart comment is my way of trying to capture that James knew Jesus on a level that many people didn't. It must be hard to imagine that your own brother is God. Like, after all, you know what his farts sound like and what his morning breath smells like and what his bed head looks like, and you've seen him when he's moody or upset or crying. So if, if Jesus and James followed any of the norms of sibling position, then Jesus as the oldest would have been the one to assume responsibility and tend towards authority pretty easily and be the one to nurture and care for the younger ones in the family and expect their loyalty in return. And James, as a middle sibling, would have maybe felt sometimes neglected within the family uh, and would have likely been known as a peacemaker between the siblings. Now, who knows if if any of that sibling stuff is accurate, but what seems to be more clear is that James didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Up until the crucifixion, James thought his brother had just gone off the deep end, gone out of his mind. Uh, and then after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. First Corinthians uh, tells us this. And it seems that when James began to actually believe all the things that his brother had been saying all these years was after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to him. And that's when everything changed for James. So a quick discussion question for you. Imagine that your own brother was God in the flesh. How do you think you'd handle that experience? So go ahead, reflect on that, discuss with the people you're gathered with. All right. There's a part of James' story that's left out because somehow, by the time you get halfway through the book of Acts, James has gone from this kind of no-name person to being the person at the center of the church in Jerusalem. He is the key leader of the council in Jerusalem, Acts 15. The apostle Peter, who was leading the church, it seems like he's been run out of town by Herod Agrippa, so James is at the helm. The Apostle Paul calls James a pillar of the Jerusalem church. And so he becomes known as James the Just or James the brother of God. And true to his sibling position, he is still a peacemaker. When the church encounters some of their first cultural debates around what life choices matter for Jewish and Gentile Jesus followers, James the Just is the one who's making peace between the two groups. Uh, he's listening to both sides and helping to chart a path between the tensions. Once James became convinced that his brother Jesus was who he said he was, 
James really wasn't concerned with telling everyone about the resurrection of Jesus. If you read the book of James, he never mentions the resurrection of Jesus in his letter. He became concerned with the teachings of Jesus. In 108 verses in the book of James, James restates something from the Sermon on the Mount or something that Jesus taught 80 different times. Out of 108 verses, he's rephrasing Jesus 80 different times. James was focused on the church, these, these little home churches, these gatherings becoming communities of solidarity and mercy and compassion, rallying around the sick and the sinful and the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed in order to heal and to save. James didn't see the teachings of Jesus as something to be lived out individually. He didn't see the life of faith as a personal choice. He saw it as being part of a community, and it was a communal identity. So out of 108 verses in the book, James uses this word, y'all. He uses it 80, 80 times, nearly. And so you read it, it's interesting. Our English translations don't catch the y'alls. Um, I had someone this last week say they've, they've never heard of the y'all thing in James. But they're there, and they matter a whole lot. Christianity in our modern times has sadly emphasized belief over lifestyle. Um, so, like, much of Christianity in the U.S. has been, well, if you believe the right thing, then you're golden. And it, the, the really ugly side of that is, like, it doesn't matter what you're doing to care for the poor or the marginalized or what kind of oppression or hatred you're complicit in, racism, white supremacy. It's like... Well, no matter how much you're gossiping, no matter how much you're hurting other people, uh, if you believe the right things, you're golden. And for James, he was running in the other direction because discipleship to James meant integrating beliefs and lifestyle. Uh, his concern was focused on how the community of believers treat one another and how they treat the poor and the marginalized and how they live in the world. James held an egalitarian view of leadership rather than a hierarchical view of leadership. Um, so just a few examples here. There he is. He's a towering figure, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Whatever the church in Jerusalem says has ripple effects across the known world to all the other churches. And so James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, could be leveraging his position as the leader of the Jerusalem council. But instead, in his letter, he presents himself right off the bat, very first sentences, he presents himself as a slave or a servant. Uh, rather than saying, hey, I'm the guy in authority, he says, no, I'm a slave, I'm a servant. He, he opens the letter, hey, it's James slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have also leveraged his position as a brother of Jesus. That's not a status that many people could claim, but instead in his letter he speaks to everyone as equals. Fifteen different times he calls them brother and sister. He's the brother of Jesus, but he's calling them brothers and sisters. Eleven different times he calls them 
affectionately, my beloved brothers and sisters. So talk about modeling solidarity with the lowest state of the people who he's writing to. See, he's writing to people who were poor, poor and scattered. They were uh, landless, cut off from their religious and social support systems. See, a hundred years earlier, the Roman general Pompey took land away from many Jewish peasants. And then on top of that, Herod the Great hit these peasants with these massive taxes, pushed even more of the struggling farmers and landowners out of business, forced them to sell their land. Now they're forced to move because of economic and political reasons. And so they were scattered in a world where there was no such thing as a middle class. There were the few, the wealthy, the elite landowners that had these vast feudal estates. And then there were the majority poor. Uh, <clears throat> the majority poor were tenant farmers, day laborers, just people trying to scrap together an existence. And in a world of limited goods, uh, it was the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And there, there was no in-between. So James is writing to these people who are landless, scattered, cut off from their religious and social support systems. These impoverished Jewish Christians living under economic exploitation from rich non-Christian landlords. And the economic tensions that were going on, along with grain shortages, they all boiled up into the War of 66 through 70 A.D., which Christians did not participate in that war, but they, the tension certainly boiled up into a war. And so James opens his letter. What's the very first thing he's going to say? He says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when y'all fall into all sorts of trials, because y'all know that the testing of y'all's faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that y'all will be mature and complete, lacking no one. Now, one of the easiest mistakes to make when reading this passage and plenty of scripture is to think that it's talking about us individually. A lot of people have read this passage without the y'alls, uh, so they read it individually instead of as a community. Those who grew up in a majority culture in the U.S. are probably pretty accustomed to a me culture, not a we culture. And so we read that into scripture when we read a verse like this. So we tend to think about trials individually. It's what I'm going through. It's, it's what you are facing. Uh, we tend to think about faith individually. Uh, like, what is it that I believe? We tend to think about endurance individually. How am I getting through this? And so when we face trials, we don't think of them as something that, how are we going to face this? Uh, how will our faith help us hold together? How are we going to get through this? That's not our first orientation. Now, not only do we think of faith individually, we also tend to think of it confessionally. So when we hear that word faith, we're thinking what you believe. We're not thinking, what's your lifestyle? When we hear that word faith, we tend to think of like maybe a religious conversion or like, does God exist? What do you believe? It's interesting. Bible scholar Nijay Gupta at 
Portland Seminary and Northern Seminary. He's done a lot of research and writing and reading on this. It points out that in the ancient world, if you asked a average person on the street, what does faith mean, this word, pistis, 99% of them would say, oh, faith, it's a willingness to bind yourself to a person or a group. So it was a you-can-count-on-me factor. It was loyalty and allegiance and reliability, social concord, relationship. That was what faith was. It was the you-can-count-on-me factor. And so trials, James is saying, test our you-can-count-on-me factor. As a community, they test us there. So the trials that James was probably referring to were these situations of economic exploitation against impoverished Jesus followers. Now, we all go through trials. Uh, the stuff that we can go through is so diverse and complex and intricate that sometimes it's difficult to even explain to someone why it is as tough as it is. There are just too many details, too many moving pieces to even explain it all. But it's just hard and painful and overwhelming and stressful and frustrating and sad. And we feel alienated and unpopular and betrayed and sick and grieving and lonely and misunderstood. And James is not saying to people who are in that boat that the joy is in your tragedy, that the joy is in your crisis. He's certainly not singing the song, Don't worry, be happy. That's not what he's doing. Uh, he's, he's actually not trying to affect anyone's emotions at all. The word that he uses when he says, consider it joy, it is a thinking word. It's not an emotional word. It's a thinking word. So he's describing a deliberate and careful way that we think about trials, consider it joy. And so he's saying that every trial is an opportunity for y'all to learn the character of your support system, which in our case, we're talking about the church, the gathering. Every trial is a test of faith. It's that process of determining the genuineness of the communities you can count on me factor. How are we going to get through this? And so when our you can count on me factor gets tested, James says it produces endurance. Endurance literally means to remain behind. It's the capacity to hold out, to bear up in the face of difficulty, and steadfastness. The corresponding Hebrew word is hope. Uh, so it's this source of strength. So let me give you this image here that really captures this word. Like what? So the you can count on me factor gets tested and it produces endurance. Endurance is remaining behind. What is this? All right. So sometimes our family goes on hikes and one of the children gets to this point where it's like they can hardly move, especially when they were younger. <clears throat> they run out of steam. And so they might literally just fall over in a heap on the side of the trail. 
endurance, according to James, is not me plowing ahead on the trail, working through my own sore muscles, carrying my own load, getting to the end of the hike. Endurance, remember, is remaining behind. So I go back to that child. Everyone else can go on ahead, and then we work through it together. Maybe we get a drink of water, eat a snack, have a hug, have a pep talk, offer to hold their hand, maybe offer a short piggyback, maybe start a game or a conversation, work through it together. And by staying back there, remaining behind with the child, that child finds hope. It's this remaining behind is a source of strength to them. Now they're like, oh, I can keep going. Uh, in his famous love chapter, the Apostle Paul says, love endures, that's that same word, all things. So it's love remains behind in all things. Now, it's interesting. We tend to think of endurance as an individual word. So uh, we imagine an endurance racer, um, and so it's just one person who's able to run hundreds of miles. We think of one person's moral character. They're, they're going ahead alone. This is the American version of endurance. It's someone who, like, wow, they made it through that cancer battle, and they're really strong. Or they weathered a really difficult job. <laughs> and so that's that American image of an in, of endurance. It's like this endurance racer, very individualistic, very modern view. But the word that James is using is this demonstration of the whole community's faith. And it's how do we all remain behind for one another? How do we stick together and get through it together? Viewing God as the source of our being and our worth, how do we remain? How do we remain behind with one another? Because life is full of scenarios where different ones of us fall over on the trail, and we just can't go any farther. We break down. We give up. We mess up. We screw up. We throw a fit. We fall apart. We get injured. We lose hope. We just can't go any farther. And our modern individualistic me culture looks at that person and keeps on hiking. Nobody says, how are we going to get through this? They say, I wonder if that person will get through it. I wonder how that person will get through it. If someone falls down on the side of the trail and then they can pull them their own selves up <coughs> by their own bootstraps, muscle their own way through, then they might get some praise. Like, wow, look at that endurance. Look at that resilience. Look at their faith. Wow, they're amazing. But if that person just can't go any farther, and so they just lay there on the side of the trail, completely out of gas, our me culture often makes more shame comments. Like, well, they must be lacking in some character qualities. Like, that they're just not very resilient. They're not very strong. They're not very capable. Their faith must be weak. Our me culture tends to just move on without those people. Leave them there. We got places to go. We got things to do. So if they can somehow recover, pull themselves up, great. Otherwise, they're on their own. And it's just really easy to get into a mode of life where we're all doing our own thing. 
we're all on our own we're all our own individual endurance racers basically and yet if we want to tap into the fresh vigor of the early church and the teachings of Jesus it appears that it all begins with becoming a we people who remain behind with one another you ever seen someone go through something hard and <clears throat> they don't emerge from the experience more mature, more perfect, more complete, not lacking anything? I've sure seen that. Sometimes people go through hard things and they come out the other side and it's like, man, they're just injured and traumatized and now they're limited and weathered and just a broken shell of who they used to be and their self-esteem is shattered and their nerves are shot and their capacity for life is gone and they do not appear to be more mature or complete they do not appear to be not lacking anything they look like they just got put through a meat grinder what does james mean when he says let endurance have its perfect result its perfect work so that you all will be mature and complete lacking nothing. I, I remember reading that and being like, man, that sometimes it doesn't feel like that's the way it goes. Well, let me offer you an equally valid reading, an equally valid translation of that text that I'm not claiming this is the right way to read it. It's a way to read it. And personally, I'm leaning towards it. And it goes like this. James says, Let endurance have its perfect result, its perfect work, so that y'all will be mature and complete, lacking no one. See the part I changed there? It's not lacking nothing, it's lacking no one. You say, wait a minute, my Bible says lacking no thing. Yeah, that's possible. The, <coughs> the Greek word, medes, or medin, can mean not lacking even one man, one woman, or one thing. You say, which one is it? Well, sometimes in Scripture that, that language is used to refer to things. Jesus used that language in Scripture over and over to refer to people. No one. Over and over you can find Jesus in the Gospels using the same word to refer to no one. And so... It's a bit of a contextual question. It's also a bit of a mystery. Uh, and I put the question like this. Okay, so how does remaining behind, remember that's endurance, how does remaining behind have its complete and perfect effect, its perfect result? Well, I think it's that we finish the journey not missing anyone, not leaving anyone behind. We remain behind, and so we don't end up missing anyone. So that's why I'm translating it as lacking no one. And the New Testament echoes this theme over and over. It, it says over and over, how can the body of Christ be mature and complete if it's missing people? God's not willing that any should perish. So James is saying that remaining behind endurance has its perfect effect when we finish the journey, finish the hike, not missing anyone. And you'll notice that James begins his letter with this concept, not leaving anyone behind. And he ends his letter with this concept, 
saying, my brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone brings that person back, remember this, <clears throat> whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from their death and cover over a multitude of sins. So back to your everyday life. The question is, are you facing each trial like an endurance racer? Are you caught up in doing your own thing? Just making it to your own de destination? Getting through life, getting through your own problems on your own? Letting other people get through their own problems on their own? You're just the little blue engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Is that your framework? Or do you see trials come into your life, come into other people's lives, and you're celebrating that this experience is an opportunity to learn the genuine character of your support system? Neatart's Friends Church in this case. Uh, like, it's an opportunity to learn, well, what is the, the you can count on me factor here within this church? How are we going to get through this together? This is an opportunity to measure that factor and stretch that factor and grow that factor because only together can we become mature and complete who God intended us to be. So, a final discussion question for you today. What sacrifices are involved in remaining behind and what rich rewards emerge when we lack no one? Love you, friends. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.